Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Strange Boat Podcast. I'm Keith Arthur and joining me here on the bridge is very good carp angler and totally brilliant writer Mark Cunnington. Mark has created some of the strangest and most outrageous characters and situations ever in angling fiction in his syndicate series of books. So I'm attempting to find out where his inspiration comes from. Welcome aboard, Mark. Thank you for finding the time to have a chat. You must be busy. I am, yes. New book out. So I've been uh, lots of uh, posting and packaging and uh, sorting orders, signing books, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's been really good fun. If we can start a little bit with your fishing, you're based in Kent. Now, that's an area that I know because I, I, I for, for a few years I ran a tackle shop in South East London and, and Kent is based in carp, carp fishing history isn't it in, in, for the last 50 years 55 years you know I had the Broadland the, the uh, Broadland's crew coming the Brooklyn's crew coming in rather and the Sutton and, and the Darrant people were all coming into my area it, it, is that what inspired you to fish or were you an angler that turned to carp fishing no, I was an angler who turned to carp fishing, and I'm actually based in East Sussex, so I'm about, oh, sorry. Oh, what, 18 miles away from the Kent border. So, I mean, I've got pictures, the earliest picture I've got of me fishing is an old Kodak slide that my dad must have taken of me down uh, a local reservoir that's in Hastings called Buck's Hole Reservoir, and still lots of guys go and carp fish there now, and that was in 1965. Um, so I was someone who always fished from a very, very young age and gradually turned to the dark side <laughs> in about 1985, <laughs> something like that. And uh, I think like a lot of guys who made that sort of gradual transition to carp fishing, what I used to do was I'd still have my one float rod going and I'd put my second rod out and I'd be ledgering on the bottom with, you know, whatever it was, probably wasn't boilers at the time, but maybe a bit of uh, sweet corn or bread or maybe some luncheon meat and something like that and add it on, you know, a dough bobbin or something like that. And that was my sort of one that might go, but probably won't. And then eventually you get invested in it enough and learn enough about it and you, you shift over to going at it two rods at a time sort of thing. So, yeah, it was always that <laughs> um, gradual progression. But out in my garage, I've still got the old ABU closed face 503s and 505 reels and Intrepids and Mitchell reels and all manner of you know cane rods little cane rods and milbro rods so yeah it was all a sort of like a not match fishing but what you would describe as pleasure fishing we used to do yeah. a bit of bream fishing on the bottom you know with ground bait and maggots and what have you and, and a bit of float fishing as well really in local venues really so the bit that i would stretch out to would be the walland and romney marshes where there were lots of drainage ditches where oh. there was all types of fish out there some nice rud in some of them roach few tench but predominantly bream i guess were 
the species that you would, would catch and if you caught one bigger than two pounds you thought wow that's a tidy old chunk sort of thing <laughs> I, used to, I used to fish the Rotherham one or two places around there in the Royal Military Canal and I, I once even went as far as to fish a match believe it or not on the White Kemp sewer um, yeah well that was one of the ones that I used to fish and that I mean I can tell you a fantastic story about the White Kemp sewer I mean I fished it probably from the middle late 80s out there and desperate to try and catch a 20 pounder out of there but never did i got a 19 pound common and i caught an 18 something mirror and i put that up on facebook and there was a, a lad who i knew um from my syndicate and within five or ten minutes he put up a picture of the fish that same fish that i caught probably 1989 or 1990 he caught it well you know four or five years ago so it was something like sort of 15 20 years later he, he'd caught this fish and um yeah it grown to like 25 pounds and i was absolutely yeah. gobsmacked but the, the that's not the big story the story is that my club that i belonged to at the time was hastings and bexhill somebody caught a 33 pound pike out of the white sewer and then oh. they went back there again and it was just munching up all these small commons that were there you know five or six pound commons and the guy went back there again fishing with his mate and he had this weird take and it was the same fish again that had snapped somebody up and he sort of you know didn't land it properly sort of thing it got caught up in whatever it was coming out of its mouth it was trailing line and he sort of foul hooked it and brought it back in and it went over 40 pounds it did goodness from, me and you i mean that white kemp sewer it starts from up one end and it's on the bit they call the straights it, it's quite wide but it narrows down to a sort of a very narrow sort of tiny little drainage ditch that you wouldn't even look twice at yet it held you know carp in those days to you know just under 20 pound and it had this probably one super massive pike and that's not like a, a mythology it's not a fisherman's story that's that's genuine and that that's club amazing. record still stands 33 pound it is yeah wow. incredible I think I had 13 13 12 or 13 pound of roach and skimmers and, and rudd and perch and stuff it was went in the days of the linesman so it would have been 1974 75 i guess and yeah. uh, i don't think anybody hooked a carp saw a carp or understood there'd be carp anywhere near it they're obviously pike there because they're pike everywhere aren't they? so yeah yeah but you're, you're now you're now i'm more well, i want to say serious but i don't mean serious serious with a small s um, perhaps carp anger aren't you? You, you you're dedicated yeah i mean i think it's a it's a strange sort of thing i mean i go for myself and i'm in one of the nicest syndicates in the country i belong to wingham's which the biggest fish in there goes to 60 pound um i've called it at 58 pound so that's my pb and my pb common comes from there it's 47 pound but it's a place that i've been in a long time but it's a beautiful venue it's in the middle of kent it's sort of miles away from any main roads uh, there's only 30 of us in there i'm paying you know posh golf club fees to be in there but it ticks all my boxes i can drive right the way around the lake drop my gear off go back and it's a lovely place and in between that i do other little trips to more local waters sometimes going back to places with that club that i was saying about uh, back to sort of the 80s i go back to waters there and you know i think carp fishing everybody you know maybe want something out of it there'd be younger guys who want to go and fish all different venues and go around the country and catch certain specific fish i'm just looking now at my stage of life um as somebody who just wants to go very much on my own terms fish in a very nice environment where there's still a very strong etiquette amongst the members there's no sort of uh, shenanigans or there's not much aggro going on everybody gets on well everybody respects everybody and that to me is one of the most important things and i go there to a very tranquil peaceful environment with some nice fish there um, in an old school type of etiquette and very much it's enjoyable and pleasurable and i get what i want out of it and that's all i need i'm not fishing for 
anybody else and just fishing for me you know I've got no tie-ins with any commercial company and never have and um, sort of diverting off onto the books that's one of the things that I'm proud of really that they've got what they have through you know their own merit you know they're not because I've been in a magazine all the time I've got a time with a big tackle manufacturer and they're pushing me and I'm pushing them so all the stuff that's in those books is all the tackle mentioned is tackle that I've bought and paid for and that I use myself so yeah that, that that's it and I think that's an important thing that people can lose sight of they sort of can look at what other people catch and you know they, you can't catch 40 pounders if they're not in front of you so you need to sort of be um, you know in it for what you want to get out of it really and that can be lots of different things for lots of different people but from my point of view I'm very happy with what I'm doing and I thoroughly enjoy it and yeah it's it's, it's a, been a huge part of my life and yeah I still love going and still enjoy going and yeah, that's that's I think the most important thing with it really. It's good to be like that. I got a message yesterday with an accompanying photo from one of my pals who lives around the corner. I live quite close to the Thames in in southwest London, and uh, because it was a bit warmer yesterday, he'd gone out hoping to catch maybe a roach because he had he had his first two pound roach for a while out the river um, not that long ago. And Did he it, went out yeah. and fished bread. Yeah, he fished bread on three. That's that's what he loves to catch. And he, he had the same session. He had a bream just over eight pound as well. So he's you know he, he knows yeah. his onions down on the river. And first cast on his little bit of bread yesterday on three pound line on a, on a feeder. He's a big fish angler. He's, he's you know he fishes three pound line for the roach on bread. When yeah. he fishes boilies for the roach, it's it's much heavier gear because you know you might encounter a carp. And first cast yesterday, he encountered a carp. Yeah, he had a, a, a mid double common that just looked like God had moulded it. Yeah. It, it was in its winter colours. The river's been clear because it's been cold. It's been low because of the draw-off we have on the semi-tidal river. So the tail was red and its belly was golden, just like a, the colour of an old thrippany bit all across its back. Yeah, Just a beautiful-looking fish. And I, I could tell how thrilled he was just in his text message, you know. And, yeah, uh, yeah excellent. Um, so, so now... Um, you mentioned that you had um, inspiration for your books from, from your own fishing and, and, and what you've done. You've got some blooming characters in there, mate. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, that is the one thing that I get asked about all the time is, you know, are the books based on anybody? You know, is it somebody you know or somebody who's a friend of a friend and stuff like that? And I mean, apart from doing fishing I've played an awful lot of sports I've played local level table tennis for donkey's years I was sort of played county level football so I was a reasonable local footballer and played tennis and you meet lots and lots of different people and obviously I spent my entire life in the construction industry and worked on building sites and met some amazing characters on there <laughs> some really funny people and there isn't any real character the, the guy who is the first person narrator is sort of loosely based on myself because he's somebody who's when he sits inside his bivvies he's a thinker and he's running things through his head and he analyzes and he reanalyzes and he goes the ins and outs of it you know and he goes into it in depth and i'm a little bit like that but what is great with the characters like that is I can put in sometimes what I think and then I can also think well I'll put in exactly the opposite of what I think so he's the guy <laughs> who's driving it all along but as anybody knows who's read the books the, the unlikely partnership between the first person eraser which is a guy called Matt Williams is um the guy he meets within the first chapter of the very first book and it's a guy called Timothy Eugene Ramsbottom which is shortened down to Rambo, who's an ex-army, ex-mercenary type, uh, Captain Scarlet, indestructible, six foot four, inverted pyramid, massive muscular guy whose answer to any problem is a clenched fist and violence. And maybe he's somebody who we would maybe all like to be a little bit like that, that when it comes down to it, when there's some guy in a queue somewhere giving you jip or there's somebody upsetting you or doing something that really annoys you, you could, you know, if it comes down to it, 
just leave him looking as uh, Monty Python <laughs> once said, like four tins of open cat food. You know, you could just take someone <laughs> apart. And it's that sort of, it's not gratuitous as his violence, but if it's needed and it's necessary, he's the guy, he's the go-to guy. So between them, they make this unlikely sort of partnership and they're two completely different personalities. And the idea of naming him Timothy Eugene Ramsbottom was to, to sort of, what's the most sort of like, passive, weak, limp, tepid male name you could think of. And I think Timothy's probably right up there. So that's a good guy. Oh, my mate Tim Watson won't be buying any more of your books, mate. Tim Watson is a pure (laughs) listener. That's a definite, that is. Mind you, he's a rugby player who's always injured. Yeah, well, there you go. I'm expecting he is. I think I'd be always injured if I was a rugby player as well. But uh, Tim's not quite so bad, but if you say Timothy, it's even worse. Oh, Timothy, yeah. Yeah. yeah so that so that was the, the sort of the idea behind him was to have these two unlikely people thrust together and they're the they're the hub of everything that revolves around the stories they're the central theme that have gone on now through nine books and 30 years so as they've aged and grown up they've had children they've had affairs they've fallen out with other people and too many numerous things to mention have have happened to them so that's that's the the thing about the books that they're they're nine separate self-contained stories but each one uh carries on from where the previous one finished sometimes there'd be a little bit of time that's passed but essentially it's a huge narrative arc of nine you know a million words now i've been doing them the publishing dates are 23 years apart i've wrote the first one in 1993 that's how long ago it was and um they've taken on a life of their own really and when i sit down and start to sort of write them i quite often have got a sort of a vague idea where the story is going to meander off to but quite often it doesn't end up and i've looked at notes that i've made at the start of a book of what's going to happen and by the time i've finished it it's nothing like that if i've got so familiar with them and i think oh what would rambo do now and what would matt say you know and put them in all these sort of um weird and wonderful situations and that was probably the reason for writing them in the first place i'd started doing a few articles one of the ones that i'd done was for a uh, david hall's specialist angler which was in the 90s and i wrote a spoof agony art column under the pen name of carpius maximus where i would write in with all these um terrible problems that these anglers had and then be brutally dismissive of them one of the ones that always sticks in my (laughs) mind which i thought was a a funny one was a guy got addicted to eating his boilies Uh, he said oh i just love those strawberry cream ones i love those chocolate ones he said even at night he said i'm driving the wife mad he said i'm i'm on my catapult and i'm pinging them against the wall and catching them on the rebounds and eating them and and the answer to it was he says oh he said what you need to do is go cold turkey he said i believe jeff kemp does it so that was the the punchline for that Is Jeff, Je- Jeff Kemp for anybody that doesn't know is a yeah. famous bait manufacturer of, yeah, of, of, of some repute yeah. Yeah. yeah so it, writing those articles was fun but I couldn't sort of I wanted to do something different and fresh and widen it out and put these guys into real life and you know I could have written it about a football fan or someone who was obsessed by golf but it was cart fishing that I was into and if there ever is a obsessive um, pastime, hobby, sport, whatever you want to call it, then cart fishing is it, <laughs> you know, yeah, and that's that is it. Uh, what's I mean, the number of people I know that you know they haven't got infidelity or unreasonable behaviour on their divorce certificates, they they could have carp fishing, you know, and blokes squirrelling money away from the missus, you know, so they can buy this and buy that and buy a ticket and stuff like that, you know, and it's all gone on, and so you don't have to sort of stretch it too far because you've got the basis of quite a sort of like a cart fishing on steroids manuscript really because guys do it and guys are obsessed and when guys are obsessed they find a way and when they find a way they're wheeling and dealing and stroke pulling and what have you and then you just look at that and absorb it and bump it up a little bit to the next level or maybe the next level on top of that and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you got the syndicate series. <laughs> I'm sounding, making it sound easy, but yeah. So that that was that was the whole sort of um, reason behind it. Really, was to to write something different. Uh, but to really, I think the thing that drives them. You've got the characters, but I 
I hope it's the humour. And so many people have said, oh, I've read this book and it's making me laugh out loud and it was so funny and wife was getting fed up with me. And then their partners have read it. And even though, you know, fishing may be sort of like a double-edged sword, they know that their uh, partner's interested in it. Um, but it may be a source of aggro because it drags them away from doing various other things. But they've read it and because they understand it they can find it funny as well and I've always tried to put a few female characters in there so it's it's been yeah an interesting process really but it's the humour in the characters that drive it and I've tried to sort of stretch reality so that you know that it's sort of too much but it's I like to think there's a core truth to it and that it's sort of grounded in reality so it's believable in a way even though what you're reading is unbelievable and that's one of the sort of little games that I play in it because in the books Matt Williams eventually the first one I won't explain how because it'll spoil it <clears throat> the first one gets written and eventually they get published by the end of the seventh one in the books and basically the thing is that he needs to um, you know as I say get them published and he doesn't want to sort of reveal himself so he writes under the pen name of Mark Cunnington and then in <laughs> so he sort of like and, and that's the sort of way of trying to disturb reality and to break it up and, and to sort of make it seem as if that you know how much of this is true you know if you did change the names here and you did change what happened here and exaggerated this bit you know is there a core truth to it although it's fantastical and it's over the top and we know a lot of it isn't real is it based on a truth and I think they've sort of they've I don't know whether you heard that sorry um, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's got a core truth to it so that that's the thing although it's it's over the top and it's bloated and extravagant it, it's got that core truth that it's still relatable to it and, and I think you know hopefully I've succeeded in, in doing that it's not far away from the truth in, in, in some places. I mean, we, we've spoken before about um, your own um, off-the-wall bait manufacturer um, in, in the book, Dear Pup. Yes, yeah. And I mean, Pup. Um, I know acronym. him. I know, I know <laughs> three or four of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, Pop-up Pete. Um, yeah. Mm. He's a guy, basically, who's turned his house into a... A bait manufacturing shrine, a boily shrine. In the book, it's called. They call it his house of a thousand rampaging flavors. Um, and then Matt says, "Oh, I reckon he said I could cut a bit of your carpet up and air it and catch a carp on it because it's infested with smells." And anybody who's made bait at home, particularly if you use the Hutchinson monster crab flavor, that was just a <laughs> beast of a flavor. That wouldn't hang around the house and getting the curtains and getting the cat and getting the carp. <laughs> getting your coat <laughs> and it take ages to get rid of it so this guy's lives on his own making bait you know boiling it mixing it drying it in the bait and he's got like a, a 19 to 22 mil room which is one of the bedrooms and it's just a whole little industry in his house and as you say you know two or three i know two or three and probably anybody who's into carp fishing knows you know somebody like that who's become so sort of again obsessed with carp fishing that they think yeah i can i can make a living out of my hobby i, I can i can make bait you know and we were all doing it in the early days we were all sort of making our own bait before it became what it is today and yeah bloody hard work <laughs> well, when i had that, when i was running that shop in in southeast london uh, we managed to source quite a few of the ingredients that specialist companies were charging an absolute fortune for and and buying them from the base source things like cassian and and some of the, the um aminos and and, and and stuff and, that, and they were there was some real money to be made on those um but of course once you bought some stuff you bought a lifetime supply came in the tub about two inches by two inches because you yeah. didn't need much of it and didn't use much of it and people were saying oh you need less and less is more and you know embuteric acid was something you tended to stay away from and uh, i think the essential oils I, I think we had a supply of those in streatham and we used to buy them by the litre. And by far the most expensive one was black pepper. 
Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Black pepper was a very expensive one. And some of the, the, the big sellers weren't very expensive at all. But uh, yeah, black pepper was very expensive, I remember. So yeah. do, do you do you get inspiration when you're fishing? Do you, do you, does the things ever happen that you think, I can magnify this, I can tweak it, I can blow it that way a little bit and, and just get a situation perfect for the book? I'll be honest with you and say that it has happened a few times, but um, what I have done when I'm writing a book, sometimes like a couple of them, I wanted to do um, some po uh, some poetry in there. So someone who was sort of that sort of, um, you know, sort of um, away with his own sort of ego, if you like, that he thought that he could write carp fishing poetry and so that was a good thing to sit down and write while you was fishing because it's a small amount of words you haven't got to sort of have a laptop there you can just write it down pen and paper nice simple thing to do so that was one thing that I would do and also um, there's lots of musical references in the book so when I'm fishing I'd have lots of time to sort of think of those and obviously with a smartphone nowadays it's much easier you know to google um, you know uh, titles of songs that I can sort of change a few letters to make them carp orientated. One that sort of springs to mind at the top of it was not Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles, but it was Strawberry Cream Forever, so, you know, one of the flavours <laughs> for the bait. So, so things like that I would do. But in terms of actual sort of things happening to me while I was fishing, there aren't too many occasions when I can think, oh, you know, that's really given me a great idea for... Um, you know putting uh, into the book you know things happen you know you might crack off or something or you cast occasionally you might sort of forget things that you've done over the years like casting out not putting a, a bail arm not turning it over sort of thing so little things like that or you cast something and it try to do an underarm cast and it loops back and wraps around the, the rod tip little things like that but mainly it's all sort of all comes from my twisted imagination <laughs> that's where most of it is all born in there sort of thing and one one person said to me he said oh i said uh, it was on facebook i think he said uh, he said oh i said i'm really looking forward to this this book he said and wondering where your twisted mind is going to take us next and i thought does he really think that but i suppose you know from an outsider looking in there you know we've covered an awful lot of ground in these books and yeah they are on the outer reaches of um, imagination, I guess. You know, we've had ghosts, we've had porn stars, we've had carp fishing XXX DVDs, we've had mind melds, we've had drug trips, we've had deaths, uh, we've had shootings. Yeah, we've had all manner of things really <laughs> go on there. You used to call the series Richie McDonald. <laughs> 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 he's a lovely bloke, Richie. I, I, I've got a whole load of time for, for Richie, I've got to say. I, I, he's an absolute cracker. He is, he is a, a complete character. When did you decide you wanted to be a writer? I mean, I, I related to someone in a recent podcast that, um, you know, I, I, at the age of 48, I started broadcasting and I'd never done anything before that. And But I remember um, talking to my career's one of the careers people we had come into the school and uh, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to be I went to a good grammar school they produced fuel for Oxbridge um, yeah. and, and, and I I didn't know what so I, I just told them I wanted to be a BBC newsreader um, yeah. because they couldn't give me any advice on that so I learned to no. read properly and I learned to read out loud quite well and um, and but as I said to, said to Stephen I was talk, talking to him previously uh, the only time i ever read the news was at talk sport at six o'clock on a saturday morning when the newsreader hadn't turned up and they didn't want me to read it but i was going to anyway so i took the previous <laughs> bulletin and read it for the six o'clock news and then through to moose doing the sport so yeah that was um, that was but when, when did you have an inkling that you might like to write a book well much like yourself um um my parents were both working class parents. My dad was a plumber, mum worked in a factory. Um, I got to a grammar school. Um, and again, you know, we had guys go to Cambridge and Oxford from that grammar school. And that gave you a sort of like a, a self-belief that, 
it gave you a work ethic that school did and we won't go into the rights and wrongs of whether grammar schools should exist or not but it was different times in those days when I took that 11 plus didn't really have a clue what I was doing really I just passed it and I got there and that was it there was none of this sort of parents you know coaching me with tutors and buying expensive <laughs> houses to get in a catchment area I was just a working class kid who, who passed the 11 plus and got to a grammar school but even before then I'm going to mention a book now that you've undoubtedly heard of it was Colic Colin Willock, the Encyclopedia of yes. Fishing. And that was the first book that I sort of really gobbled up and I've still got it now. I've got the um, traces of the drawings in there and I've sort of copied bits out of his book when I've done my own little how to catch fish things in, in a little scrapbook. And the other great thing that I loved doing was um, copying the artwork of Keith Linzel in the Angling Times. Mm his sort of uh, drawings of sea fish and freshwater fish so there was always something in me there that was attracted to reading and writing and I guess not that you know I was a sort of like an indoors kid I played lots of sport as well but you know we're going back to a time the 60s where you know you you read you, there was a little bit on television on the one or two channels that we had you know one to begin with in black and white but there was nothing like there is for kids today to uh, you know entertain themselves and gobble up time you know so reading and writing were i was always a big reader i think that probably if you're a big reader i don't think you can be a writer without being a reader to be honest with you no. um and um it all sort of went from there and eventually i found somewhere where i could sort of get my voice heard and it just was like a natural progression really and it was all started with carp fishing sort of starting to boom through the 80s and all of a sudden there was all these column inches that needed to be filled and more people were joining it and exponentially it was exploding and it was read this and read that and this book's coming out oh, there's carp fevers out and then <clears throat> carp strikes back and then rip me a pool and all these wonderful books were coming out left right and center and i was getting sort of sucked i was riding that wave as well and really getting into it i packed up playing football and i thought yeah i you know i, I can contribute to this but i couldn't contribute in a well, I didn't want to, well, I couldn't have done. I think it's fair to say I couldn't have done because I didn't have, you know, the, the fish captures and I didn't have the experience to warrant me writing technical or anecdotal bits. But what I could write were off the wall, different, funny bits. And that's and that's how it all started, really. And it, it went on from there. And uh, people may or may know this, but the very first book was originally serialised in Cartworld in 95 to 96, although I started writing it in 93. It was a chapter a month for 14 months. Cartworld was the ideal vehicle for it because it was a big magazine, you know, plenty of scope, could have a few sort of like a bit outlier type articles, a bit left field. Tim Paisley, you know, said go for it and I did and that sort of gave me the chance to sort of write something different and then with the internet sort of coming along then and I thought the only way that I can take complete control of it because obviously in Cartwell <laughs> it's a magazine that young children could pick up so all my salty language was edited and my best adult jokes were taken out and that sort of was oh I quite like to have, that to have stayed in there. <laughs> the only way I could do it was to bring it out in a book form, you know, and, and have complete control over it myself. And that's how it started. So from those very first, you know, chapters in Cartwell, and then I produced a paperback version, an unexpurgated version of it, uh, with the mind to um, write in a sequel, got myself set up on the internet with websites, credit card facilities to take, you know, payments over the internet which was quite a thing in 1999 when I done it got cartbooks.com and cartbooks.co.uk as my domain names you know no one else was even thinking of buying them because I wouldn't have been able to got them you know five or ten years later because someone would have snapped them up but I got them and it, and it all went on from from there really and from that day it's been me taking the photos writing the books and apart from you know the help I get with proofreading the actual construction of the book in the printers and the building of the websites I literally do everything myself even packing them and uh, posting them 
<laughs> taken to the post taken office. So, so it is a one-man band thing. thing yeah. But the great thing is, I mean, I'm an only child, so I'm used to doing things on my own. I was a self-employed person from 19, worked on my own, never worked for a firm. Everything I've ever done in my life has been me, just on my own. So that doesn't feel strange, me, me doing that. And I guess, I suppose over the years, you become, the kids always say to me oh you don't listen to anybody you always want to do your own thing you always think you're right <laughs> but, oh, yeah. it's um, quite justifiable I, I, yeah. I know that feeling very well yeah, <laughs> yeah. but that's it it's me on my own you know and i can do them and i can push them in whatever direction and a bit, bit like i said earlier with my fishing i'm doing it for me you know i'm not writing oh i've got to write this now and i can't write this because so and so might think that i just write what i think is funny and hopefully what people will enjoy and push the stories and these characters in whatever direction and bring different people in um zany characters and yeah i think it, it's it's worked pretty well and people have enjoyed them i get lots of people saying that they've they've made them laugh and and that's all there are they are i mean before we come on here we were talking about books and how people buy books as collector's items my books were were never that they were never done in hard cover they were never done in leathers they were just soft backs densely packed a lot of words per page so that they were as small as they could be so they weren't thick they weren't a doorstep that you had to lug around with you to hopefully encourage you to take them fishing and read them on the bank and if they got smeared up with mud or you dropped them in a puddle they were a ten or a pop and back in those days a little bit more expensive now it didn't matter you know they weren't this pristine thing they were something for someone to read with dirty fingers and covered in fish slime and to hopefully entertain hopefully them. covered in fish line yeah hopefully covered in fish line yeah. <laughs> and strawberry cream of course and strawberry cream of course absolutely <laughs> so yeah that that was that was it really that was how it all started and become a huge part of my life you know because every day I'm looking for orders you know waiting for them to come in and think oh I've got to do this got to do that and when I've got a new book out obviously it's even more so it's uh, yeah it's been good fun doing it and I hope when I'm sitting writing them I always think to myself if I'm not in the mood to do it I can tell because it comes across as jaded and tired I've got to be up for it when I write them because they've got to be fun and there's got to be a laugh on every page almost more or less I'm not forcing the laughter but it's got to be done with a bit of verve and a bit of elan you know to, to make it punchy and to make it interesting and if you're not feeling that mood you just there's no point trying to write it when you're not feeling up for it sort of thing so I hope that sort of reflects in in the books when people read them well, I can appreciate that a bit because, I mean, I get sort of a deadline with the little bit of stuff I do still in Angling Times. It's only 300, 350 words, but it still needs writing. And, and nowadays, it even needs a bit of researching because I can't remember everything about everybody. So I have to, I have to especially going back, you know, some of the historical stuff. And, and some days I'm not in the mood. And when I read it afterwards, I thought, well... I didn't really enjoy writing that, and I'll, I'll do it again. But other days, I'll sit down and hope, hope the editor isn't listening. I'll do four in the morning. You know, I'll, I'll just get them out. That's, that's 4,000 quid, Keith. Yeah, if only, if only. <laughs> Those were the days. Chris Yates, maybe, not me, mate. No, Bauer Media aren't what they used to be when it comes to paying, and, and nor is anybody else come to that. I, when I think back to, um, to what I used to earn on Talk Sport, um, I bet even some of the big names on there now don't get the amount of money I was getting in sort of the late 90s, early noughties um, really? for doing yeah. my c couple of hours on a Saturday and Sunday morning. Yeah, I was earning much less when I left them when I started, let's put it that way. Yeah. And that was with Barry Hearn as a manager. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Blimey, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. I mean, he, he could strangle a bit more out of Sky. That was, that was okay. Um, n now, obviously, we've lost the great Nick Fisher. Um, who I know, yes, you were, uh, you you knew ever so well, and, and and I'd had some dealings with him as well, and and I read, and I think I read one of your posts on Facebook that at one time, and I think I knew this before, but I can't remember if I actually did or not. There was a time when there were discussions about turning the syndicate or something like it into a TV series, weren't there? Yes. Well, it was a, the story of it was that um, Nick used to have a radio show on radio five called dirty tackle and 
this was just about 1999, 2000, it was. I can't remember exactly. I think it was 2000. I've still got the cassette in my drawer somewhere of the show when I went up to meet Nick. And the only reason why I think I got plucked out to go there was I'd written these books and I sent it off to a lady who was producing the show. And she used to live in my road where I live. And I still live in the same road now. And she said, oh, your address, you know, really stood out. She said, though, then I read what you sent me and she said oh it sounded really interesting so i went up there and met nick and we done this um little chat together a bit like we're doing today it, it wasn't a live show it was all recorded um there was some other guy there who um if i remember rightly had um some device to help disable people fly fish and he had these all this sort of things that it was sort of like a a belt that you could wear so you could sort of pivot the rod and yeah so he had a wide range typical nick you know interested in all different aspects of um fishing and i don't know whether you remember do you ever remember a series on bbc called man child with nigel havers and dan warrington no i don't um I, I'm, I'm not an avid tv watcher but there's two people there that uh, that, that can put words together and they're on a screen absolutely yes yes and the sort of premise of it, it was like a comedy drama thing um that that nick had written and it was these guys who were sort of you know into middle age sort of late 40s something like that been successful had plenty of money but they got divorced so you had like the original wives and their new wives their new trophy wives so it was a comedy drama based on that and he said to me he said oh we said i've just had this thing commissioned by the bbc he said i've got um you know quite a high standing with them at the moment. he said i love the idea he said of being able to do a comedy drama for fishing he said your books are so different he said i'm really um you know up for up for doing it and i thought he said do you want to give it a try and so i thought about it for a, <laughs> a nanosecond and kissed his hands and he said please make it happen you know fantastic and i couldn't believe it and i thought wow you know just out of this sort of chance meeting i've met this guy who's really interested in fishing and i you know obviously had heard of him before and he was also a scriptwriter, and at the time he was the film critic for the sun as well so he was quite you know well respected and a very talented writer and he got some lady to and i still got it on my computer somewhere to do like a sort of a, a summary of the syndicate series and he said don't be upset if she criticizes it he said but he said it just gives me a sort of a a report a basis so we can go to production companies and see if we can get someone interested in making it so he paid for this woman to do this report and essentially um, she said yeah it was quite good she said it's not strong enough for a movie but for a comedy drama it would be could be good and that was just the syndicate the very first book and then um nick was in america writing a pilot or meeting people to write a pilot for manchild for the states and he nearly died then because he had um a poisoning from crabs he ate a crab and he had um you know it put him into a coma sort of like I went into some anaphylactic shot whether the crab was poisoned or not i'm not really sure I never really found out but it was only because his agent come and knocked on his hotel door and he didn't get an answer that he went down to reception got him to open it up and that saved him so nick had been through that at the time but going back on to the you know trying to get the syndicate made for tv he um you know pushed it out to various production companies and all of them just sort of said well you know we, we we can't really see it really we we don't think that any commissioning editor will go for it and it we got knocked back to everywhere we we turned even with you know he's standing behind us as someone who was prepared to to write the script so it never happened and then um obviously i tried other people as well and a few other people um nick done a piece on my books in the shooting times he used to write the um angling section within the shooting times and some guy who was writing one of the soaps on channel four got in contact with me he said oh he said uh, send me your first three books as there were then i got up to um return of the syndicate part three so i sent them off to him he said oh he said they're not what i expected at all he said they're really good they're really funny lots of similes in them i really like them he said they're they're good he said leave it with me i'll see what i can do well nothing come of that and then somebody else tried a guy um 
who uh, had done the play uh, an evening with Gary Lineker. He tried to, to, to get it off the ground, but it just got knocked back every time, Keith. And, you know, since mm. those days of probably the mid-2000s, no one sort of come forward and picked them up. Although, you know, strangely enough, now is the time that you would think that if you have written a series of books, that's the thing that TV companies are crying out for because there is just so much content content out there now. You know, yeah. you've got Sky, you've got Apple TV, Disney+, Plus, Netflix, Amazon Prime. They're all making content, but whether anybody, you know, the quarter guys have done great... Um, Monster Carps on ITV4 or wherever it is now, they've got that back on terrestrial telly because really since John Wilson's series there hasn't been very much on at all, if anything. Um, but yeah, it's just I mean, Jeremy, people, Jeremy, Wade, Jeremy Wade's done Jeremy brilliant Wade, well yes, by him, has, hasn't he? But, but th- then the thing is, Mark, they're nothing like the No, syndicate. of course not. No. You know, that's the thing are, I, yeah. They're fishing programs, you know. You've not written fishing books, no. You, no. You've written, the, the, and the problem I can see with it, and, and if, if if you think it through, the biggest headache would be how much of the production would have to be outside. Well, that was one of the things that the guy said to me because the first book, the syndicate book, it takes you through a whole season. He said, "Well, he said, Do you imagine the cost." He said of trying to prepare it so it looks like summer, so it looks like autumn, so it looks like winter. Because one time they're they're all without giving the story away there they're all fishing together to try and win this trophy the alliterative tom watt 20 trophy and they don't want to lose their swim so they're fishing there while the lake's iced over they're not fishing they're just camping there sitting out waiting for it yeah. to thaw <laughs> and yeah it is difficult and to get actors you know to sort of use fishing equipment properly it, yeah, it would cost a lot of money it would cost a lot yeah. of money drama's expensive and obviously something outside would be even more so so yeah, yeah. It, it, it's yeah it's my dream i guess but it's been such a long time that anything sort of cropped up it's just one that's it was on the back burner now it's sort of <laughs> out the back of the back of the back burner if you see what i mean but it, yeah. it would be now fantastic it's in, the ba- it's in the baby bird in the baby yeah. burko with the hemp and tiger nuts now <laughs> that's right it would be, and what would be fascinating from my point of view would be to have somebody come along you know who was going to adapt the series and to to see what they would pick out of it you know to, to for them to come in with a a fresh eye and see what they would extract from it and how much they could marginalize the fishing maybe to make it more acceptable to a wider audience and because it, 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 it is about fishing obviously and all the glossary of terms are in there uh, oh don't talk don't talk to me about glossary of terms <laughs> when, when i wrote my book i wrote it with the glossary of terms as the first chapter so anybody that was an angler would know what i was talking about then when it came out they put it at the back <laughs> you know yeah my, my, my clever description of not as a tangle with a name and you know things like that it's, it's uh, yeah, yeah. you know that that was and, and some of it was was genuine um, glossary and glossary, and some of it was was sort of made up a little bit. But yeah, yeah it's it, you think what you've just said is is how how I could see it being produced is is angling as at its core, but there's just snippets yes. of, of, of bankside activity in it. It stems from what happens on the bank, and it would need obviously a lot of rewriting and a lot of yeah. a lot of preparation. But uh, you know, you you can't help but think with that volume that you've got there, definitely a series. You know, when I see, you know, I'm I'm, I'm watching Better Call Saul again at, oh, right, at the moment, yeah. and and, yeah. and you see where where stories that come from, and and you know, Saul Goodman doesn't spend much time in court. No. If you if you, you may not watched it, but if you have, you'll know that, that Saul Goodman, and that was yeah. you know I didn't realise that until I think it was series three or series four. Saul Goodman is Saul Goodman, and and I never saw that, and and I'm usually pretty good at picking things like that up. I didn't pick that up at, at all, and oh, right. until yeah. he sort of referenced it. So yeah, but there yeah. you go. But that's yeah. that, that's that's where I am at the minute. Um, what about? expanding it further i mean i don't know whether you've got plans or whether these things come to you when you're sitting by your bivy and, and the, the conkers are raining down on it or there's hail bouncing off the ground in front of you you're you're sweating your cobs off in the middle of summer 
people don't understand it's a huge commitment to write a book you know it's an, i mean when i back in the day when i used to write them when the kids were young and i was doing you know a full-time manual job it was a nice juxtaposition to have to sort of go and do a manual job and then come back and write a book but the amount of hours and i used to say to people if i put as many hours in going out doing plumbing and heating i'd be much better off financially than what I would be writing these books. I said, even though I'm doing quite well out of the books, I said, but that's not the point. It's 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 something different. So I think when I was writing in sort of like the heyday period, when I'd sort of done the first one, I just got all my websites, that was 1999. I wrote the second one, the Syndicate RIP part two in 2000. Then it was 2002, four, six, eight, ten, bang. First seven books of um, volume one. I was almost like tied into a contract I had with myself, if you like, to write one every two years because that's what I wanted to do. Once I'd finished those seven and it had sort of wrapped it up, I could have stopped there. And I thought to myself, do I want to revisit it? And it was 10 years before I actually did. And like I so, said, written another book in in the meantime which was nothing to do with fishing and eventually I thought well you know it would be fun to go back to it and maybe 10 years have passed give Rambo a sum and then we go on from there so it's not something that sort of I don't get like a light bulb flash of inspiration think oh yeah that's it it's probably just a gradual coming around to it and thinking okay I'm ready to put the hard yards in again and commit to writing what's normally a hundred thousand words per book sometimes a bit more um and spend god knows how many hours doing it and i've got to enjoy doing it it's got to be fun for me to do it so i've got to be in that right frame of it's not so much a inspirational thing it's am i prepared to go and sit there and commit myself to to doing this i've got no time scale but if you leave it too long and you're not sort of reasonably sort of strict with yourself you get out the swing of it you lose the thread of it you think oh what have i written oh i've got to go back to that i can't remember what happened because it's three months since i last visited it that's no good you've got to be sort of on it sort of not every day possibly but reasonably sort of going back and getting into the sort of on the treadmill if you like if that's a way of saying it on of um yeah of uh, getting to a position where you're sort of there and you're in the moment and you're writing it and you're you're going through and you're seeing it through and and you can progress it and take it on you know you can't leave it for months and months and then go back to it so i guess that's 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 it it's feeling that you've got that desire to want to commit to it you've got an idea a kernel of an idea and you can see where that takes you and you're going to enjoy writing it and that'll be reflected in in the book itself when it's finished and people will will think yeah it's another good one and and, and maintaining the standard it, I, i'm not going to write it for the sake of writing it and just think oh i can put another one out and maybe make a bit of money out of it. It, it i want it to be as good as the others and that people will always have their favorites but the latest one it's only got nine reviews but loads of people have phoned me up and said they've really enjoyed it. it's got nine reviews on amazon it's four point seven out of five at the moment people have said they've oh it's as good as the others um, they've enjoyed it so yeah I've, the standard hopefully is still there and it still makes people laugh and sometimes I'm sort of repeating myself but when you've got a volume of work like that you can reference back to books before and see if people pick up on that and little phrases that I use that people can sort of catch on they're almost like catchphrases if you like really like a comedian will have a catchphrase they're little phrases that i use that have been used through all the books and you know with that familiarity all the sketch shows rely on catchphrases and stuff like that so it's almost yeah. a bit like that with my books it, it it underlines the character as well doesn't it you know yeah of course you, it does, you, yeah. you can think of how many how many 40 towers catchphrases you've already mentioned monty python you know how many um david jason catchphrases are there through his and, and ronnie barker you know yeah, th those yeah. people all had phrases they used regularly um, yes. that cemented their character and i suppose if you can get that into a series of books you're actually personalizing uh, personifying in in a manner of speaking that in a manner of speaking 
<laughs> That's right, yeah. And I mean, something like, say, The Fast Show, you know, nearly every sketch is sort of like a repeat of a sketch before, you know. Yeah. Uh, just a slight variation on it and that familiarity. And you know what the punchline's going to be or, <laughs> you know, what he's going to say at the end. Of, like when he says, oh, I'll get my coat, you know. I've ta- I've picked up one of um, Catherine Tate's gran um, catchphrases at the moment, which is probably best not repeated on air. But uh, so, somebody will say something, and I can't. I can't there's, there's one one I use regularly from Forty Towers. If somebody ever says, you know, what do you look like, or something, it's always it's something you wouldn't understand, dear. It's called style, and that comes back to yeah. me loads and loads and loads of times. Um, and and the Catherine Tate one is 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 similar, you know. But um, yeah, I, I won't. I won't. No, I don't use that kind of language on here even though she's very 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 funny when she says it so what about fishing are you you, still managing to get out a bit yeah i mean i haven't been for quite a while because i've obviously got the new book out and i've been very busy with that um the weather hasn't been conducive to it as well with this cold snap we've had lots of places have got a lid on it um typically winter i will go and do mainly day sessions at commercial venues which I wouldn't go anywhere near in the summertime and basically it's just about going there and thinking yeah I'm in with a shout of catching something get a bend in the rod go there from sort of seven till four something like that and uh, just have a bit of fun really that's that's all it's about for, for my point of view from winter fishing um, to be quite honest the idea of sort of spending 16 hours in the darkness in a bivvy doesn't appeal to me quite so much as what it used to <laughs> especially when it's minus three and four and degrees like oh, that so dear. yeah um yeah but i mean I'll, I'll give myself that when i'm 63 now so uh i can uh give myself a free pass on the not to i don't want to be going there saying the immortal phrase of i'll be glad when i've had enough of this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the number of times we, we I've mentioned that on matches in the in in the dim and distant past, fishing on winter leagues and, oh, and that kind gosh. of business, when yeah. it really was, you know, it really was. Try to buy a bite, you know, fill it in pinkies and oh, yeah. dear, oh dear. Yeah. Uh, now, so you, you mentioned your websites and and you know, it, it, I, I'm not on Sky now. I can say we can plug what we like on here so if, <laughs> if you want to tell if you want to tell people i mean the, the best thing i suppose is not tell them to go and buy a book but tell them to go and look at the website and see the yeah, books exactly, that are available yeah. and yeah. see what they can do so so just repeat your um, your urls to me again right so the main one for the syndicate series is www.cartbooks or one word.co.uk and you'll see the covers of the book and as soon as you look at the covers of those books you'll think oh these are a bit different and yeah you can go from there um if you want to go on amazon if you you can actually read amazon obviously on a kindle version they're not on the um prime deal where you can read them for free but they're there and you can have a look inside all of them and you can probably read you know first chapter of any of them really on on amazon on on a kindle if you feel so inclined just to see if it's something that you might enjoy um paperbacks you can't obviously do that but they're all the same it's they're there so they are on amazon kindle um they're on google play and they're on apple books as well but to be quite honest with you the number of books i sell on apple or google are very very small it, it's the paperbacks and it's kindle amazon kindle so yeah so there's ways of getting um you know a sneak preview if you want to see if the style is enjoyable for you see if you enjoy them yeah that's enjoyable for me mate i've read them a lot and i'll, I'll be kindlifying the latest one I've, to my shame i've not done it yet but um I, I i will do because i have enjoyed the previous um editions of the books and, and they are they're a very very good read they're extremely funny you've got a very twisted imagination thank you um, <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> A, a sense of humour that I kind of share, and uh, yeah, and and you will find some Catherine Tate type expressions in there. But they're they're, they're a damn fine read, mate. Listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's a long time since we did this. I think the last it time is, we had a chat yes. was on Talk Sport, wasn't it? That would have been yes. 
who you came into the studio i remember that would have been right, oh, yeah, a long yeah, time yeah. ago yeah it was yes indeed yeah. too long yes yeah, yeah but it's great chatting to you mate and yeah thank you it really is a pleasure and, and, and a joy and, and, and more power to your pen and to your um more power to your pen and to your bobbins <laughs> may your bobbins always be venturing skyward yeah that's what we hope yeah <laughs> cheers mate it's good to speak to you and, and, and hopefully it won't be so long in the future brilliant thanks very much Keith thanks for cheers, having mate. me it's been great chatting to you very kind you're welcome thank you bye bye My thanks to Mark Cunnington for taking the time away from both his rods and his keyboard to join me on the Strange Boat podcast. And if you've not heard of the Syndicate series of books before, the website is carpbooks, all spelt as one word, .co.uk. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Mark, and if it's your first listen to the Strange Boat, check out our extensive back catalogue. Thanks for listening, and watch out for our next cruise, where I'll be in conversation with another top angling entity. But for now, from me, Keith Arthur, it's cheers and tight lines. Sports Social Podcast Network. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.